We are finishing up our series today, a series we've been in called Cross-Centered. We've been asking the question, why did Jesus really have to come and die on the cross? And more immediately, what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for us this afternoon as we leave this place? What does it mean for us in the morning? What is the cross saying to us right now, as opposed to just being some historical event? But what is it still saying to us right now? So this morning, I may have spoiled you. I don't have any I'm not cooking on stage. There won't be any delicious smells wafting out. I'm not throwing around any chairs today. But I'd like to unpack an odd passage that has come to mean a great deal to me over the past year or so. In the Gospel of John, we're given some hints into this peculiar relationship that existed between two of the disciples. That to me is kind of funny, this sort of window into humanity. It's funny, but it's also refreshingly human. So we're going to start in the Gospel of John chapter 20. And this is just mere moments, literally moments after the resurrection has happened. Jesus has just risen from the dead. In John chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of that week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Which, if you're Peter, is a bit of a sucker punch, isn't it? Right? Peter, and then the other guy who Jesus really loved. Uh, it, was, it was popular at the time to, uh, if you told a story and you appeared in the story, you wouldn't use your own name. Right? You just, so that was kind of considered bad form or something like that. So you would have some phrase to describe yourself. So if I was telling a story about my mother and father, and I said, uh, you know, Albert and Monica and their only son were at church one day, you know, referring to myself. Um, and so throughout John's gospel, he uses this phrase. The way, the way he chooses to refer to himself whenever he shows up in the story is the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, which... I don't know if, about you, but that just strikes me as funny. It, it, uh, it also kind of maybe helps explain scholars think that the Gospel of John was the one written last, which makes sense because like he had to wait for the other disciples to sort of die before it came out. Because can you imagine being one of the other disciples and you get a hold of God, you know, oh, let's read John's. And we say, oh yeah, and the disciple Jesus loved. What, what the, hey, you know, if you're, if you're the other guys, it's kind of a, kind of a backhand. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary Magdalene discovers that Jesus is gone from the tomb. He runs to tell Peter and John, the one whom Jesus really loved. Verse 3, then Peter and the other disciples set out. They were running together, but the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, he outran Peter. Brilliant, right? So which one are you? Uh, oh, you're the, oh yeah, you're the one that Jesus loved, and I'm a faster runner. Uh, just making sure we're really clear on that. And here's what's even better. He outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. In case you were wondering, we were racing and I did win, right? So John beats Peter to the tomb. In verse 5, it says, he bent down and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrapping, but rolled up in place by itself because Jesus makes his bed, right? It's just good manners. I tell my kids this all the time. They're like, I'm too tired to make my bed. I'm like, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, like defeated death, hell, and the grave, and he still made his bed. You can make your bed. Just a little parenting tip there. It hasn't worked yet, but I'm, it's gonna. Then the other disciple 
who reached the tomb first, because I, oh yeah, I was starting to forget which one this was, yes. John also went in and he saw and believed. Because Peter, that unspiritual heathen, uh, he just didn't believe as fast as, as John did. So we know that John's the disciple uh, that Jesus loved. He believed first. And he's a faster runner. It's very important. So even as John reports this monumental moment in human history, I mean, everything turns on this. B.C., A.D., here's the dividing line between, you know, the time. The Garden of Eden is being recovered by Jesus, who conquers death in a garden. I mean, this is monumental stuff. Christ has triumphed over all the forces of evil. He has been victorious. He's conquered death. He set us free once and for all, right? The crushing blow on the serpent of Genesis 3 has happened. And John wants you to know the tomb is empty. Everything has changed. And I'm a faster runner. The two, these two things sit side by side. Scholars have tried to dissect this for 2,000 years because it's very unusual. And the, this monumental moment in human history and this petty kind of rivalry that goes on between the disciples. And there's other places in, in the stories earlier where you see this rivalry between these two. Now, turn the page over to chapter 21. In chapter 21, we're skipping forward in time a bit. So we're going forward about four or five weeks now after the resurrection. Peter, now remember Peter, if you recall his story, he's the disciple. He's the, he, he talks a big game, right? But when it came to the crucifixion, he publicly denied Christ three times. And so, uh, and John, of course, records that in excruciating detail, uh, Peter's denial of Jesus. Uh, and Peter's the one that told Jesus one time, hey, Lord, if anybody tries to touch you, my sword is out and I'm going to whoop them good, right? And when it came to his big hero moment, he just completely whistles out and denies Jesus three times. And so there comes this final encounter in John 21 between Jesus and his disciples just before he ascends into heaven for good. And they're gathering on the beach uh, by the sea, and Jesus makes some breakfast over the fire, and Jesus takes Peter aside, and in verse 15, he says, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, do you know that I love you? And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, do you know that I love you? And Jesus said, tend my sheep. And he said to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus essentially asks the same question three times, and there's some little subtle differences in the way he asks the questions that are interesting to study. But for, for our purposes today, he asks him three times, and we can guess exactly why Jesus is getting at that. And it says that Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, and it's all coming back to Peter now, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So what Jesus is doing here is a very holy thing. He has just restored Peter, basically. He's restored Peter back into kind of like, the, you know, we would say he has restored him to the good graces. 
and who's restored him to this sacred task of being a leader among the disciples. Uh, it's a holy calling to take the gospel to the world, to take care of, of God's people. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had referred to Peter when he said, on this rock, his name means rock. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. So there was this idea that Peter, he's going to have a really important part to play in all of this. But then Jesus says some troubling things. In verse 18, he says, very truly, he's talking to Peter. He says, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. So what we know from historical accounts of the day is that almost all of the disciples were martyred for their faith. They all died pretty violently for their faith. Peter in particular is famous for having, he died by crucifixion. Uh, as, as Jesus said, you will stretch out your hands and you'll be led where you would not wish to go. Uh, the church father, Jerome, in fact, records that Peter insisted on being crucified upside down because he felt that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same form, the same manner as the Lord was. And so Jesus, he hints at this in Peter's future. So this is, this is a bit of a uh, good news, bad news conversation Jesus is having with Peter, right? The good news is I'm restoring you. You're going to be a leader. The bad news is this is leading to your crucifixion. I can only imagine in the moment sort of emotions that would be whirling inside me as Jesus is telling me this. And then in verse 20, it says that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So there's John. He's kind of hanging out nearby hearing all of this. John was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that was going to betray you? So John's just making sure we also know, did I mention I get to sit by Jesus at dinner? John is awesome, isn't he? He's just, he has no problem in letting you know these things. I am the one who gets to sit by Jesus. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? So get this, there's this sacred moment that is happening right here where Jesus has restored and forgiven Peter. He's expressed his love to Peter. He tells him, Peter, follow me. I've got some work for you to do. I have a task for you. I, I, there is a special, unique destiny for the kingdom that is uniquely for you. Now go do it. Go do it. Follow me. And Peter's response to this sacred moment is, but what about him? In other words, what is he going to have to go through? And Jesus says to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And it later says that there arose this uh, rumor among the disciples because of this, that John would never die. Like he would essentially be like immortal until Jesus' second coming. But it says that Jesus didn't say he would. He just said, if, if it's my will that he stayed here, what is that to you? What is that to you? you follow me. What is interesting to me is John is the only disciple uh, apparently to avoid being executed. Although he was tortured and the historians say that he survived being boiled alive in oil. So not an easy road for John. He was then banished for life 
uh, on an island by the emperor Domitian where he would eventually die in his old age um, about 70 years after the crucifixion. So these two men, Peter and John, would both eventually glorify God very courageously in, in different settings. For Peter, for Peter, it's the Roman Colosseum making a final statement of his, his love for Christ, even in the way he died, even that last request, crucify me upside down. For John, it's, it's the Roman Isle of Patmos, which back then was called the Devil's Island, where he was banished, and he would later receive the vision that's recorded as the book of Revelation. But when Jesus gives Peter this sacred calling, this vocation, a mission, a purpose, Peter's response is, yeah, 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 but what about him? What about him? And Jesus' response here, which is just, it's both harsh and liberating to me at the same time, is, what is that to you? It's so perfect. What is that to you? How many times have you or I been invited to follow this Jesus and step into what we you know, what we're called to do, who we really are, to just step into that thing, be brave. And we get sidetracked and distracted and obsessed, getting our focus off of, of what he's called us. And we get our focus on this person and that person. I mean, it, I think I'm describing most of us here. So don't feel bad if, this, if I'm like really nailing you this morning. It's me too. We get our, our focus off on this person and that person. We miss our unique true path. Let, I want to wrestle with this habit of ours a little bit this morning before we bring this back to the cross. Let's look at a fascinating example of this in the uh, Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. This sort of a preoccupation and, and comparison between, you know, your lot in life and how others are doing life, it can infect whole communities of people. It's not just an individual thing. It's not just people. Uh, even local churches today, this is a big problem. Local churches can get sidetracked by this obsession with comparison. Pastors are all really guilty of this all the time. We get sidetracked by this. So why can't we be like that church over there? Why can't we be like that big church? Well, if we just had their resources, if we just had all the things that they have, or their people, their volunteers, their programs, their staff, their technology, you know, why do they get to, or why do, why did we have to go through you know, we'd be so much better off, all this kind of stuff. In 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, it says that all the elders of Israel came together, and they came to Samuel. Samuel's the prophet of Israel. There's no king, but Samuel, he's, he's like the mouthpiece of God. They came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, you're old and your sons don't follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like all the other nations. We want a king. Now, for Israel, the plan was that God would rule these people. He would rule Israel in a personal way, in a unique, very personal way. And this was a, a very special calling, unheard of on the earth. It never before seen. And an entire nation effectively just ruled by God. A beautiful picture. So Israel had this God-given destiny, but they want to be like their neighbors. They're like, oh, if only we had a king, then we would be like legit. Because people look at us and go, you guys don't even have a king. Like, 
Are y'all even really a country? You know, and we want, to, we want people to like respect us. We need a king. We need a palace, you know, flags and all the pomp and circ- You know, we want all that. And so verse six, <coughs> excuse me, Samuel prayed. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. <coughs> verse 11. Samuel told the people what God said would happen to them. And he says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots and lots more bad stuff. In verse 19, skip down. It says, but the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, we are determined to have a king over us so that we may also be like other nations. And what happened? What happened was exactly what God and Samuel predicted. Instead of embracing their unique uh, calling, the nation of Israel basically turned into operating like every other country on the earth. If you were just came down and from Mars and looked at Israel and Samaria and Egypt and all these other, you'd say, well, that's just one of these other countries. They're all the same. Their young people were forced into fighting wars. Their citizens were taxed more and more, more harshly until eventually uh, the kingdom splits. And eventually, part by part, it falls apart. And the entire nation essentially gets hauled off in exile to a foreign land. The whole experiment falls apart. Why? Because it began with these people with a wandering heart who, who stopped seeing their holy calling, their calling to be a blessing to the world. And a, a, this was a calling that Jesus later would come and reveal. This calling had nothing to do with borders, had nothing to do with military might, had nothing to do with ethnic purity, which they were really into back then. Instead, God's people traded away the high privilege of, of representing God's worldwide kingdom, this, this nation that was supposed to be a blessing to the world, and they traded it away for the lure of petty national prestige. What about them? What about them? We want to be like them. And they get exactly what they want, and it ends up being their destruction. And by the way, the lure of this apple is still very much alive today for the church today. So often we, we still clamor for a king when God is offering us the privilege of representing a kingdom. And we, we still say, no, nah, we want a king. Let's, let's take this to a, a personal level. Maybe we could say it this way. What happens with you and me very often is that we're just not okay with how God made us. That's just, it seems to be human nature. We're not okay. We wish we were taller. We wish we were thinner. We were stronger. We wish we were from this other family or we had different skills. It's like one of the universal aches that that humans seem to have deep down. It's just not being comfortable in our own skin because we wish we weren't like we are. God, why didn't you give me this? Why didn't you give me this? Why, why did you burden me 
with this thing that others don't seem to struggle with. They don't seem to have this condition, but I seem to have this chronic, maybe it's an illness. Why I have this? Why? Why wasn't I born into this privilege? These other, this other person has, he was just like born into this. And I don't, I wasn't born into this. How come you allowed me to go through this tragedy that this person didn't have to go through that? And when we do this, it's not just us internally that suffers. It's not just something that, you know, we keep into ourselves. When, we, when we're constantly wrestling with who we are, when we're not at peace with our own story, it, it can't help but manifest in our relationships with other people. It's going to manifest. Because how can you be at peace with other people if you're secretly wishing, I wish I had that person's this. I can't, it can't help but show up in the form of, of resentfulness and, and uh, judgment. We get these, that's where you, you get into all that passive aggressive stuff that often happens, even between friends. I'm like, why is that thing here? Because there's some sort of resentment there. There's some sort of envy going on. I wish I had his thing. I wish I were born with, I wish I had their ability. I wish I, or I wish they at least suffered as much as I do in this area. I, we, we wish, we wish. And Jesus says, what is that person to you? What is that to you? You follow me, follow me. And maybe we, often we, we spend so much of our energy and some of our prayers begging God to change the situation we're in, change the person we are. And meanwhile, God, what if he's just patiently waiting for us to embrace the person and the story that he's created for us? God says, what's that other person got to do with you? I've called you to this. I've called you to this. Let's get going. I've got stuff for you to do. We've got a mission to accomplish. And I'm telling you, there's a, there's a joy and there's a freedom in that. Let's look at this from another angle. Uh, I find this fascinating. Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn over there, you can. Exodus 20 records the Ten Commandments. Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. And what's fascinating about these Ten Commandments is the first nine, you see them summarized right there, they're what we might call external commandments. Uh, they're externally observable. Like if somebody murders somebody, you can go, well, there's a body and that's not moving anymore. I think that person was murdered, right? If somebody steals from you, you can go, my car is not here anymore, right? I, I think somebody has stolen from me, right? Uh, if, if someone bows down to a God or creates, an, you know, builds an idol, yep, I see that. If someone doesn't honor their parents or disses them and shames them, right? You can see that externally. We can recognize it. But the 10th commandment, if you notice, is, is of a very different nature. You, got, you shall not kill, lie, commit adultery. And then 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his iPad, or his BMW, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. Now, the thing is, if somebody's coveting, how do you know? Right? I could be coveting right now. You have no idea. I could be having myself a little covet fest right here in front of you. And you have no idea because I'm just smiling. Because coveting is something you do internally, right? The other nine you can see, you don't know if somebody's coveting. So the question is, why is this 10th commandment so different um, in nature from the first nine? And a lot of 
smarter people than me have wrestled with this and looked at, noticed this. And there's this fascinating ancient Jewish commentary, which simply says this, that the 10th commandment is not only a commandment, but it's also a reward. I read that. I was like, oh, interesting. And their thinking is this, when, when you obey God, when you live as God teaches us to live, you won't want anyone else's life. When you find your place in God and you live true to the, God, the way God made you to live, the way he made you, when you live with gratitude and you're living with these other things and you're, not, you're, you're following his, his ways, you, want, you won't want someone else's life because you'll be content with your own. I just think that's, that's brilliant. So maybe when we read this command, it's not just, you better not covet or else, but also when you do these other nine, you won't covet. You won't covet because you won't have any reason to. And that's kind of a blessing to me. How many times do you and I get distracted? We lose our joy because uh, we're thinking about this other thing. We're thinking about this other person. We're pulled over here. We're comparing ourselves to others. And the message of Jesus is, what is that to you? What's that to you? Over in Job, there's a scripture in Job 5 too. He says, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a classic example of a parallelism in Hebrew poetry, parallelism. You see them a lot in the Psalms. They're, they're basically, the poet says the same thing, but kind of two different ways. Here, he's, he's juxtaposing the simple and the fool. And in, in Hebrew thought, that's, this is the person who is unreflective. They're just, they're just sort of blazing through life. No self-reflection. The person who never steps back and says, why do I continually obsess over what other people have? Why, or what other people can do. Why am I doing this? Right? The fool just keeps plowing through life. He gives into every resentment, every craving, every destructive pattern, just gives in. And what results, if you notice, is some pretty violent imagery, right? He doesn't just say, you know, it's lame to do it. He says resentment kills. When somebody doesn't think through why they keep measuring themselves against others, when you find yourself longing for uh, someone else's life, without taking that moment of, of reflection and thinking through, why do I feel this way? Scripture calls this person a fool, the simple-minded, a simple-minded person. And he says it kills because it destroys the life that God meant for you to have. It really does. It deprives other people of the blessing you were meant to be to them. So it's very destructive. It renders your own life, when we get into resentment and envy, it basically renders your own life effectively unlived, Right? Resentment and envy result in a life that is never fully lived. What a waste. What a tragedy. Now, let's bring this back to Jesus. Uh, as we, we finish our series today, let's ask, how does this help us be the people who are shaped by Jesus, shaped by the cross? Cruciform is that word, you know, shaped, cross-shaped, cross-centered, how do we look upon the crucified Christ as our pattern for living on a daily basis? Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. How do we look on that as a pattern for us? This is so cool. I think this is cool. So Jesus instructs Peter, we saw earlier, he, to stay focused on his own 
mission, right? And Jesus can say this with authority exactly because this is exactly what Jesus has had to do through his whole ministry to stay focused. Think about it. Over and over and over, Jesus is told by other people that he should look and talk and act more like what people expect of him. Just about every town he goes to, he's being told by more people to look, act, and behave like people expect of him. The Pharisees tried to get him to act more like a Pharisee to prove his piety. His followers tried to get him to act more like a a political savior to show that he's really up for the job, right? His family even tries to get him to go home and just uh, do his duty as a good son, act more like a good son. His critics multiple times try to provoke him into, you know, proving his divinity by calling down thousands of angels or, you know, to come to his defense or, you know, launch into an inspiring speech and and convince us of who you say you are. You know, uh, leap off the cross, said one of the the thieves on, on the cross. He said, why don't you leap off the cross and shock everyone? Even the devil if you remember when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil tries to get Jesus to act more godlike by leaping out of the sky in front of all the people and prove his divinity on a mass scale. But Jesus has a unique mission, and it wasn't to fulfill anyone's expectations. It was to go to the cross. That was his mission, and he's very single-minded about it. The cross is the message to us that this Jesus isn't like any other Messiah. And this God doesn't behave like all the other gods. Because Jesus allowed himself, he gave his life and allowed himself to die like no other Messiah would. He was able to conquer death like no other Messiah could, right? And Jesus had the choice continually to behave in the way that was expected to prove that he was just as powerful, just as capable as any other military leader or political leader, religious leader. And instead, he did what he was called to do. Nobody else had Jesus' mission, did they? Right? He, he knew what he was called to do, and he stuck to it, which was to become the lamb who was slain without defending himself. He had the opportunity. Don't you know Jesus like would have made a great lawyer? He probably had the greatest zingers that would have just left everybody weeping in his presence, right? He kept his mouth shut. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't strike back. He sure could have. In fact, the one time one of his followers strikes back, he heals the enemy, right? He doesn't call him on others to take up arms for him. He does this. He fulfills his mission. And only then was Jesus able to be the Savior, not just of Israel, but of all of mankind. Because Jesus had a, had a purpose and he knew what it was. And it was a unique purpose. So for us, the cross is a reminder that we don't play the world's games. Our mission is not like everybody else's mission and purpose and calling. We don't play the world's games. We don't have to play by the world's rules. We don't, guys. We don't. We don't have to fight their battle. We don't have to grasp at their power. We're not going to win that way. We don't succumb to their fears. We don't resort to their name-calling. We don't resort to their fear-mongering or their 
enemy labeling. The cross is the reminder that our calling does not look like that of any other religion or empire on this earth. It is a one-of-a-kind calling. Now, this means that if we're serious about being Christians, and, and by that I mean a Christian, right? One who is like, follows Christ, follows in the steps of Christ. If we're going to be Christians, and not just another brand of, of, of zealots that the world definitely does not need, because it's got plenty of those, we must be willing to bear our cross. We have to be willing to be like Peter, to stretch out our hands and be, and be led where we may not wish to go. And for some, yeah, that's going to that's gonna mean enduring hardships and suffering on the mission field and the thir- some third world nation somewhere. But for others, it may mean responding with love and grace when your coworkers treat you unfairly. For other people, your testimony to the world may be enduring loss and pain that was unfair, but you endure that while being remaining faithful to Christ. That's, that could be your bearing your cross. Why must I undergo a trial that no one else does? Why must I have to do that? What about them? What about them? What's that to me? Jesus tells me to follow him. Can I just add this? That when you compare yourself to other people, it's not just unhealthy. You're actually setting your sights too low, right? Because the one we're called to emulate is not another person. It's not another church. What a lame goal to set, right? That does not get me out of bed every morning to be like anybody else. We're called to follow none other than Jesus Christ. He's what we keep our eyes on. And you aren't going to be graded at the end of days uh, on how well you follow in the footsteps of anyone else on earth because you are no one else's disciple. You are no one else's disciple but Jesus Christ, right? And the moment you do make someone else your Lord, and become a disciple of that person or that organization or whatever it is, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. We're nobody's disciple but Jesus Christ. Why, why does it seem then so much easier to focus on what God's doing with other people? If this, seemed, if this is so obvious and it's, so, it's, you know, it's all through Scripture, why do we keep coming back? Why do we compare ourselves to other people? And I think at the end of the day, it's because comparison is a shortcut to action. It's an easier way to go. Comparison is a shortcut to action. Resentment and envy, honestly, they take all the pressure off me. Because then I'm, instead of me doing what I'm supposed to be doing, it allows me to just wallow in this nice, comfy mud puddle of, of what's going on with so-and-so? What about them? What about them? What about this person? And I'm telling you, what Satan wants most is to get your mind off of your unique God-given identity, your unique mission, and to sucker you into gauging the fairness of your story compared to another story. If Satan can get you there, he's won. He don't care what else you do. But when we learn to trust God, to grow in our confidence of who we are in Christ, you know what? We're also going to become more at peace with who we're not. 
And I know that's for some of you today. Being peace with who you're not. You know what? You're not your brother. I don't know your family situation, but you're not your brother. You're not your sister. You're not your mother. You're not your father. You're not your best friend. You're not your arch rival. You are the person God has made you to be. You. You aren't that coworker. You're not that teammate. You're not that preacher, that famous person on YouTube or whoever it is, that writer or that singer that just seems to do it so effortlessly and they're so well-spoken and they're so funny and they're all, they're all these things. God sets you free from all of that. Be free from all of that. Amen. To actually be you. The you that only you can be and nobody else, right? And you know what? We really need you to be you. Yeah. We need you. This community, you fill a part that no one else can. Right? We need you to be you. Resentment kills and envy slays. What is it about others today that you find yourself endlessly preoccupied with? And it's killing your joy. It's slaying your soul. It's destroying the whole story that God wrote for you. And you're dying inside. And, and the strong life-giving words of Jesus to you today are what is that to you. Just follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, dear God, we want to we be true to the, the path you have given each one of us. Lord God, you call us into community so that we can help one another become more like Jesus. We say it all the time. We don't want to be more like this person or that person, but all of us, Lord God, want to be more like Jesus. God, help us together as a church to uh, wrestle through these unique callings and destinies that each of us have and that we have as a church. Help us to wrestle through not why are they getting to do that or why, what about that group and what about them, but who are we to be? And how do we do that obediently? Now, Father God, I pray for every person here today who's had their joy and their, their celebration stolen by resentment and envy. And I pray for healing for them right now. Help us all to just slay that beast of comparison. Help us all to discover our true self. Nothing fake. No more desperately trying to be somebody we're not. God, give us the courage to surrender daily, to follow you, to take up that cross so that we can really live. We don't want to live frustrated, dissatisfied lives of what if, what if. We want to really live. In the name of our Savior, our Healer, and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, all God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's stand to your feet this morning. As our prayer partners are coming forward, if there's anything we can pray with you about, anything going on in your life at all, these guys would love to pray with you. If you want to say yes to Jesus today for the very first time, come down and let these guys pray with you. They would love to lead you in that very next step. Amen. So my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, pour out his favor to you. And when those little voices of doubt and envy and resentment try to poke their head up, hear the strong re redeeming words of Jesus telling you, What's that to you? Come follow me. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir.